0: This morning, if I were to mention the name Freddie Steinmark, how many of you would recognize that name? To be sure, Freddie Steinmark's name is not exactly a household word. I'll give you a hint, he was not a great theologian nor a great preacher of another era. But in your mind, I want you to travel back to me to December the 6th, 1969, to the wintry landscape of Fayetteville, Arkansas. As the Texas Longhorns and the Arkansas Razorbacks met that day in what was billed as the game of the century, because 1969 was the 100th anniversary of college football, and the game between the Longhorns and the Razorbacks that day was billed as the big shootout. President Richard Nixon was even there and presented a trophy to the winning team at the end of the game. Freddie Steinmark played safety for the Texas Longhorns. And yet, only three weeks after he played in the big shootout, he lost his starting job on the Texas roster. It's New Year's Day, 1970. And the Longhorns are coming down the tunnel of the Cotton Bowl in Dallas, Texas. They're running onto the field. They're ready to play the Fighting Irish of Notre Dame. Freddie Steinmark followed the team on crutches with only one leg. Because during that three-week period between December the 6th, 1969 and January 1st, 1970, Freddie Steinmark lost his left leg to cancer. And as a result of that, he wrote a book. The title of the book is, I Play to Win. And the book chronicles his battle with the cancer that spread to his lungs, the cancer that actually took his life less than 18 months after it was first diagnosed. But the title of the book, I Play to Win, along with his attitude during the entire ordeal, summed up his philosophy of life. It's also the philosophy of many of the rest of us as well. He said he had been taught from the cradle that Winning was the only answer. He had also been taught from the cradle that an all-out effort was necessary to win. You see, folks, we are conditioned to win. And one of the outstanding words in our language is victory. And certainly we can't be victorious every day of our lives. But we should never admit it. They tell the story on Arnold Palmer, the great golfer, that he was once in the middle of a great winning streak of golf tournaments. But in the final round of one tournament, Palmer missed by a couple of strokes. He was furious with himself because he missed those strokes, and that cost him the tournament. A friend said to him, Cheer up, Arnie. You can't win them all. And Arnold Palmer tersely replied, Why not? In fact, it was Vince Lombardi who one time said, There's only two places, first and last. In fact, I know a young man quite well that his senior year in high school, he played on a football team. A football team that ultimately played for a state championship. state championship they lost by two points. And that young man to this day, you ask him, well, where is your UIL medal for coming in as runner-up? In the state championship game. And he'll tell you, I have no idea. Well, isn't that medal important to you, someone asked him? He said, not really. All that medal is, it says, you're the first place loser. Quite often, the attitude, the words, and the action of an individual reveals defeat or victory from the very outset. In his book, Darryl Royal Talks Football, Darryl Royal makes the statement that defeat is mental. And he then relates a story from his grammar school years in Hollis, Oklahoma. He tells the story of a boy named J.V. McEwing that he was walking home from school with. They were in the third grade, and they were on their way home when an older and Larger boy bounced J.V. out and they had a fight. And Daryl Royal in the book relates that J.V. took a drubbing. That's his words. They picked up his books and they continued on down the sidewalk. And Daryl Royal tried to console his friend and said, You put up a good fight. It's no disgrace you lost that fight to that other boy. He's older than you are. He's bigger than you are. It's no disgrace that you lost that fight. And J.V. said, he didn't whip me. And Daryl Roy said, sure he did. There's no reason why he shouldn't. And J.V. McEwing said, he didn't whip me. He's just a little bit ahead. We're going to fight again tomorrow. Now, this morning I don't want to talk about winning football strategies. I want us this morning to think about Having an attitude of being a winner, or having an attitude of being a loser. Having an attitude of being defeated. Attitudes of being defeated. Attitudes of being a loser are contagious attitudes. And they're attitudes that must be avoided. Take a look at the Israelites that we read about in the Bible. The Israelites had been in bondage in Egypt. God sent an 80-year-old tongue-tied shepherd by the name of Moses to deliver those Israelites. Now imagine, if you will, all that they had endured. The whip of the taskmaster, the verbal abuse, all the deprivations that Israel had endured. But on their way out of bondage, they came to the Red Sea. And as they came to the Red Sea, here is what the Israelites had to say. Pharaoh's army is pursuing them from the rear. The Red Sea is in front of them. They've escaped Egyptian bondage. And in Exodus 14 and verse 12, Is not this the word we told you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians then we should die in this wilderness. There's the Red Sea. There's Pharaoh's army. And what are they saying? They're saying, we're not going to succeed. They're saying, we're whipped. And since we're not going to succeed, and since we're already whipped, let's just don't put forth any effort at all. And all these thousands of years later, you find folks in the church, and you find folks outside the church, that have that same kind of attitude. Look how insistent they were. Is not this the word? Didn't we tell you this? Moses, didn't we tell you to leave us alone and let us just stay and serve the Egyptians? We told you so. We told you something like this was going to happen. What do you see there? Beloved, that is the mentality of a loser. That's the mentality of someone that's beaten before they ever get started. You remember as they traveled toward the promised land, and they were on the threshold of the promised land, and in Numbers chapter 13, Moses sent out the twelve spies. And their mission was not to determine if they could take the land. God had already said that He was going to give the land to them. Their Mission was to find out how best to do it. Write this down. It's on the final exam. It is not what life brings to us in her hand. It is what we bring to life in our hearts that makes the difference in people. God had already made the decision that they could have the land. Their mission was to determine how to do it. And what did they find? Oh, they found it to be an exceedingly good land. They found it to be a land that flowed with milk and honey. Grape vines that it took two men to carry. But, they saw something else there. They saw the giants there, the sons of Anak. And they said, (coughs) We're like grasshoppers to us. And they were afraid. The difference... And what they saw was the way the majority and the minority saw them. Joshua and Caleb, they saw those giants, the sons of Anak. They saw them in the light of the power of God. And when they saw them in the light of the power of God, Joshua and Caleb said, let us go up at once. Right now, let's go possess the land. In fact, with daring language... They said they are bred for us. They may be giants, but they're bred for us. That, beloved, is the language of a winner. That's not the language of a loser. Here's how the losers talked. Someone that's beaten before they ever get started. Those other ten spies, they were completely unnerved. They were wringing their hands. They were beside themselves. We, were, we saw those giants, the sons of Anak, and, and we were in our own sight like grasshoppers, was their pitiful wailing cry. Those ten spies made one contribution and one contribution only. And the only contribution those ten spies made was one of discouragement and despair. In fact... The enterprise of possessing the promised land had to wait 40 years for that whole generation to die before they could go up and possess the promised land. You want to talk about a man that was beaten? What about Elijah? Elijah won a great victory for God on Mount Carmel. He completely routed the prophets of Baal that's recorded in 1 Kings chapter 18. You remember that story? That's actually one of my favorite Old Testament stories. He taunted those prophets. The prophets of Baal called upon their God all morning and there was no answer. Elijah had proposed a contest between him and the prophets of Baal. Which one of them's God could burn the fire on the altar, burn the altar, burn the sacrifice on the altar? Oh, those prophets of Baal. Oh, they tried. They called on Baal all morning and no answer. They leaped up on the altar they had made. They jumped up and down. And at at noontime, they'd been doing this all morning. So at noontime, Elijah decides he's going to make sport of them. And he starts to mock them. And he makes fun of them. He said, cry louder. He's a God. Maybe He can't hear you. And the prophets of Baal cried louder. Elijah said, maybe he's on a trip. Maybe he's taking a nap. Maybe he's too busy to hear you. Can you see it? They cut themselves. And by an eye of faith, can you see the frustration of those prophets of Baal? They'd had their chance and their prophet, their god, Baal, couldn't start the fire on the altar. So then Elijah took his turn. And Elijah says, I can just here Elijah in his mind saying, we're going to, we're going to get, make this really good. Elijah built an altar of stones in the name of the Lord. And then you know what Elijah did? After he built that altar of stones, Elijah dug a trench around that altar. And then Elijah put the wood in order. And then Elijah cut the bullock, the sacrifice in pieces, and laid the sacrifice on the altar. And then, just to make sure that the prophets of Baal got the message, he poured four barrels of water on the altar, on the offering, and in the trench. He poured four barrels of water on that altar three times. And then Elijah called on the name of God. And when Elijah, God's man, called on the name of God, fire came down from heaven. It consumed the burnt sacrifice. It consumed the wood. It consumed the stones and the dust. And it licked up the water that was in the trench. And then, if you read the rest of the story, that was when Elijah put the prophets of Baal to the edge of the sword. But wicked Queen Jezebel, Wasn't going to hear of it. Jezebel made a vow that she would kill Elijah. You know, actually, Jezebel was so wicked. You see, just as many people name their daughter Jezebel as you do people name their son Judas. It just doesn't happen, does it? So, the next time we see Elijah, since Jezebel's made this vow that she's going to kill Elijah... The next time we see God's man, he's hiding under a juniper tree. And he's asking God to take his life. That's the language of a defeated man. That's the language of discouragement. That's the language of a loser. And that's not even the last of Elijah's discouraging, defeatist moments. The next picture we have of Elijah shows him even more of a loser. It shows him even more discouraged and defeated. The next scene pictures him in a cave on Mount Horeb. In, in 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 14, he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant. They've thrown down thine altars. They've slain thy prophets, and I I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. Elijah was as much as saying, I quit. I'm fed up. I've had enough. I can't take it anymore. Nobody seems to care. I'm the only one that even cares. The words of Elijah, those are the words that The discouraged and the defeated utter in sadness and in anger. Go home this afternoon and you read 1 Kings chapter 19. If 1 Kings chapter 19 says anything to men and women of the 21st century, it's simply this. You can conquer discouragement. You don't have to be a loser. What are the causes of discouragement? What are the causes of defeat? What does James tell us about Elijah? James says that Elijah was a man of like passions that you and I have. He was just like us. He was discouraged. He was defeated. There are physical causes sometimes of discouragement and defeat. 24 hours earlier. Only 24 hours. When we see Elijah under the juniper tree asking God to take his life, only 24 hours before that, Elijah had seen the power of God revealed. The false prophets of Baal had been slain. And the nation of Israel was on the verge of repentance. But now we see God's man exhausted, discouraged, and physically hungry. So sometimes discouragement and defeat has physical causes. And sometimes discouragement and defeat has spiritual causes. When you can't find a physical reason for discouragement, that's when it's time to look for spiritual reasons. Guess what? There are times, there are times that we lose our spiritual perspective. And this loss resulted in a feeling. Elijah said, Lord, I'm not appreciated. It resulted in an overactive imagination. They seek my life. In reality, it wasn't they. It wasn't some conspiracy. It was Jezebel. It wasn't a they. It was one person. It was Jezebel. And there was a loss of spiritual freshness there. The picture of Elijah on his knees praying for rain has changed. There under the juniper tree and there in the cave, Elijah is no longer spiritually fresh. Faith has been replaced by fear. And spiritual freshness has been replaced by spiritual stagnation. And he was beaten. One of the greatest examples of the language of a loser, the language of a defeated man, is the one-talent man. Matthew 25, when Jesus calls, tells the parable of the talents, and this man called his servants together, and to one servant he gave five talents, to one servant he gave two talents, to one servant he gave one talent. And he comes back, <clears throat> and he asks for a reckoning. The man that had gotten five talents had gained five more. The man with two talents had gained two more. And the man with one talent just still had one talent. And he said, he said, Lord, I was afraid. And I went and hid my talent. I was afraid, Lord. I was afraid of what might happen, so I hid my one talent. Are we afraid sometimes? Absolutely. Sometimes we're, we have a fear of temptation. When we fear temptation, let's remember the promise of 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. God will not suffer us to be tempted above that which we are able to bear. God won't put more on us than we can handle. And with every temptation, He's going to give us a way of escape that we might be able to bear that temptation. Or maybe we're afraid of loneliness. What did Jesus say? He gave His disciples the Great Commission in Matthew 28. He said, go You therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. Now listen to it. And lo, I am with you always, Jesus said, even to the end of the world. Or maybe we're afraid of persecution. And yet before John put aside his pen of inspiration on the Isle of Patmos, in Revelation John said, Be thou faithful unto death. And I'll give you a crown of life. So we've talked about the language of a defeated person. The language of a loser. What about the language of a winner? I think of Paul. Freddie Steinmark's book was entitled, I Play to Win. By the way, I have read it. Well, like Freddie Steinmark, Paul played to win. 2 Timothy is the last of Paul's letters that's been preserved for us. And Paul wrote that to young timid Timothy, his son in the gospel. He wrote it to encourage him. He knew the perils that laid ahead of him. And In 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12, Paul writes to that young man and he says... For the which cause I suffer these things. Paul's in prison. It's not long before his execution when that letter is written. And no doubt he's he's not in his own hired house now. He's in a dark, damp prison dungeon. He says, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. As Paul brings that letter to a close in chapter 4 and verse 6, he says, I'm now ready to be offered. The execution date is right there. He says, I'm now ready to be offered. I fought a good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness that the God, the righteous judge, shall give to me in that day and not to me only, but to all them that love is appearing. When we want to feel defeated, when we want to feel discouraged, when we want to feel like there's no hope, remember Paul's condition in Rome in the prison house. He's written to Timothy. He told him to come before winter. Bring the cloak that I left at Troas with carpers. Bring me something to keep me warm through this winter. He's in a dark, damp prison dungeon. He said, I'm not afraid. I'm ready to be offered. My departure's at hand. I fought a good fight. I finished the course. I kept the faith. And there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness that the God, the righteous judge, shall give me in that day and not me only. If a man in Paul's condition can talk like a winner, and a man in Paul's situation can be a winner, life doesn't seem so bad after all, does it? If Paul can be victorious, and Paul does not use the language of a defeated, demoralized person, that's an example for me. And that's an example for you. What was Paul's secret? Paul's secret was in verse 12. I know whom I've believed. I know whom I've believed and I'm persuaded that He's able to keep that which I've committed unto Him against that day. Jesus Christ was the Lord and the Master of His life. Now here's the question. Is Jesus Lord and Master of your life? Or do you need to make changes? If you need to make changes for Jesus to be Lord and Master of your life, if we can help you make those changes, come. Give us the opportunity to do that right now as we stand and while we sing.